Sylvia's, and I show up here occasionally when uh, Sylvia's off partying in New York or <laughs> Europe or someplace. Um, I, uh, I was thinking about what I was going to talk about today and going back and forth. Because last week, after the, after the talk last week, there had been some chit-chat and some, somehow the idea I should talk about so-called right view. So I was thinking about right view, and then I thought, well, should I do right view, or maybe I could do the Abhidhamma? <laughs> that was a joke. Um, <laughs> yeah. So, and then I came across this, uh, so what resolved it was, I came across this thing in the, in the Times. I made it a little bit bigger. It's a Venn diagram. And it was in regard to, uh, I'll, I'll, I'll uh, explicate it a little bit. It was in regard to the article that it was associated with was about buying stocks in a market based on false assumptions. So this this circle is false assumptions, and this circle is action, and down here it says scary, <laughs> which is which is true. On the other hand, what it what it said to me was, this is our view and our understanding. And this is our, what we do. And this is scary. (laughs) I mean, we already have a view. We already have an understanding. I mean, unless there's someone here who would fess up to not having a clue. (laughs) We all have some kind of an idea about how things are, what the Dharma is about, who we are, what's going on in the world, right? We do. Yeah, yeah that's our view, our understanding. Um, and there's some things about views that are that are interesting. Um, often, frequently, most of the time, our views lead to complaint. Anybody got any complaints about anything trivial, big, you know, potential, historical? You know, it can be minute. Complaints are our projection of our dukkha. We have there's you know the the, the our experience that we have of the world. Um, the Buddha says, is unsatisfactory. It's not the way we sort of would write it if we were writing the script. Right? I mean, that's... And that the dissatisfaction that we experience is dukkha. Whether that's, you know, horrendous agony and torture and grief, or whether it's just minor irritation, um, irksomeness, unease. And we project that out onto the world, and we get complaints. There's something wrong here. Anybody not think there's something wrong? There's <laughs> something wrong out there. But, but of course, you know, the world is the way the world is. And our dissatisfaction with it is our dissatisfaction with it. <clears throat> it's not that, that, you know, when we say there's something wrong, um, it's because we have an idea in our minds that we believe, cling to, that things should be a particular way. And we've got political views and moral views and personal views. And we often substitute our view for the direct experience itself. 
you know, Wittgenstein says, you know, we, language creates an image of the world and then we become transfixed by the image. Our ideas about the way things are. And if the, our ideas about the way things are, which is, they aren't the way they should be, people should be peaceful towards each other, we shouldn't have Steubenville, you know? How do we hold Steubenville, you know, without judgment? Not just, it's not just the original party, you know, we watch CNN do the coverage. Everybody follow, anybody not know, uh, there was in Ohio, in Steubenville, um, at a party, some poor girl got drunk beyond her ability to keep track of what was going on and was was uh, mauled by some guys and you know when the when the when the judge ruled that they were guilty the tv network then was very sympathetic to the guys oh their lives are ruined and everybody got upset about that is there a way to even relate to that without i mean we where their tendency is to want to be, is to want to classify this as wrong or, you know, shouldn't happen, rather than just experiencing the really deep sadness that comes from observing that in the world. But if our our understanding is leading to suffering. It's not what the Buddha had in mind when he talked about right view. Right view, and you know, the phrase right view, the, the translation, uh, right view as the first element of the Eightfold Path. Um, really, it's in, in, in a very real sense, it's the whole ballgame. That's really what we're looking for. If you've got, where's, where's my little picture? If your understanding is delusional or confused, let's say confused, it's less pejorative than, and we're going to act, it's going to be scary. It's not going to, it's not going to work out as we think. I, I think, I've been thinking recently of, I, I, um, been thinking recently of right view as awakened view. I, my my group in in Davis, we've we spent all of January and the first part of February talking about this, and so you know I, w- I just want to present some of the some of the thoughts about it that that were generated. Um, there is awakened. It's it's awakened view. It's the view. You might say, with with a nod to anatta, of an awakened being. It's the understanding that leads to the end of suffering. The fourth truth, right? Right view as the first element of the fourth truth. I love the numbers, don't you? You know, the the, the fourth truth is about the path to the end of dukkha. And the first element of that path is. Ditti, view, understanding. And it's, um, so it's the understanding that leads to the end of dukkha. So it would behoove us to think a little bit. You know, in some ways it's sort of Buddhist theology. Um, but in, in, um, in, in terms of the Dharma, it's not mystical at all. It's not some otherworldly thing. Um, there's a there's a uh, Stephen Batchelor recently pointed me to this, or I was listening to a talk and he pointed to it, a um, an interaction between the Buddha and a guy named Sivaka, and. Sivaka has come to him and he says, what do you mean by the Dharma is visible here and now? 
To what extent is the Dharma visible here and now, timeless, inviting verification, pertinent, and to be realized by the wise for themselves? What are you talking about? And the Buddha says, very well, I will ask you a question in return. Answer as you see fit. What do you think? When when greed is present within you, can you discern that greed is present within me? And when greed is not present within you, can you discern that it's not there? When anger is present, can you recognize anger is present within me? He says, well, you're seeing that directly. That's what we mean by direct experience. So right view is about, or awakened view, is direct experience. It's like um, it's like the taste of a banana. I can't communicate the taste of a banana to you um, with words, but I can point to the banana. If you've never tasted a jackfruit, anybody? Or a lychee, or any of those exotic fruits, it's impossible to communicate the taste. I mean, I can say, well, it's sort of mm, mm, pineapple-y. Anybody else want to <laughs> offer something? I mean, how close can you get? You know. Um, so we're talking about an understanding that's a direct perception. There's a difference between knowing about the Dharma and knowing the Dharma. There's a, some, there's a difference between um, recognizing the taste of a banana and talking about the taste of a banana. The direct experience. An awakened view is the view that leads to the end of dukkha, or the, the view of one who is not suffering. And there's some elements about it that, that are not obvious. First of all, it includes everything. It includes, right view is, your, is the view, or awakened view, is, is a view of the Dharma itself. It's that direct experience. And it recognizes... It recognizes distinctions between, well, it recognizes that the path of the heart is integral to the path of wisdom, that the two are not separate. That the difference between simply paying attention and being mindful the difference between paying attention and being mindful, sati, mindfulness, manasakara in Pali, paying attention, the difference between those two is metta. It's caring. It's, it's, it's being friendly. Metta derives from, the, the word derives from uh, the word mitta, which in Sanskrit word mitta, which means friend. He's being friendly. There's a quote from Sylvia, which uh, I found on the web. I don't know what the zebras are about, but the quote says, I cannot be genuinely mindful, open to my moment-to-moment experience without hesitation or hiding, unless my mind is benevolent. If your mind if you're not feeling benevolent, you're going to be in judgmental mode. There's going to be some resistance. Please. Absolutely, you have. I suppose that you could, if you see things in a less than charitable way, there's judgment there. Right, awakened view may not provide justice for Trayvon Martin. 
We really want justice. And we want justice because of the pain of injustice. The suffering when, when we see it. And one of the things we don't want is that. <laughs> we just don't want it. So we cover it up with judgment. And, and theologically, we cover it up with, well, God will take care of them. Or karma will take care of them. Somehow, we, we really want justice in this experience because the pain of injustice is so deep. And it's, it, we feel that it's unbearable. But awakened view which takes in the vista of the rest of the Eightfold Path, the Four Truths, everything. It's, it's rooted in the heart as well as seeing clearly. Um, it's from the Sutta Napata. I particularly like this because it's, um, oh, assuming I can find it now. Um, I particularly like it because it uh, is incredibly personal. A lot of the Nikaya's stuff are not um, personal. This is a statement. I may have read this before. I've been reading it a lot recently. It just feels so personal. The Buddha says, Fear results from resorting to violence. Just look at how people quarrel and fight. But let me tell you now of the kind of dismay and terror I have felt. Seeing people struggling like fish, writhing in shallow water with enmity towards one another, I became afraid. At one time, I'd wanted to find some place where I could take shelter, but I never saw such a place. There is nothing in this world that is solid at base and not a part of it that is changeless. I had seen them all trapped in mutual conflict and that is why I had felt so repelled. But then I noticed something buried deep in their hearts. It was, I could just make it out, a barb. It's a barb that makes its victims run all over the place. But once it's been pulled out, all that running is finished, and so is the exhaustion that comes with it. The barb is in the heart. It's not just a delusion of being in a stupor of some kind. The heart is, you know, what Sylvia is saying is that suffusing the world with boundless friendliness is maintaining, is the way to maintain mindfulness. Otherwise, you're seeing it in terms of the way it should be or shouldn't be. We're replacing our experience with our idea about how it should be. And I was thinking this morning about this, actually, why well, I walked in late because I was, I stopped in, at Starbucks to have some coffee and go over my notes because there was no traffic and it was, it was going to be early so I had some time. And the next thing I knew, oh my gosh. But, but one of the things about awakened understanding, if, if wisdom and compassion are constituent elements, then the result is going to be ethical action, ethical behavior. Our behavior is not separate from our understanding, you know? It's scary. Our behavior, our action comes from, flows from our understanding. So awakened understanding sees the the essential uh, 
the the importance of sila of the sila elements, speech, action, and livelihood, and all the precept practices, and all that those will naturally arise from awakened understanding, from right view. When all those, you know, all the when right view is um, clear, the behavior will be appropriate in speech, action, livelihood, and in and in attention and intention. We'll even be nice to ourselves. <laughs> you know, I mean, compassion can start with ourselves. We like to start our meta with ourselves, but you know. We can be compassionate with our with ourselves and recognize um, our own our own suffering, our own dissatisfaction. So I think the 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 fact that being awakened, seeing things as they are, includes the heart and the and and the vision. There's a poem by by Rilke where um, basically I think it's can't remember the name of it, but the basic idea is that it's not enough to just see things clearly, you have to love what you see. And and that's in the Metta Sutta. I thought I I would I know we love the Metta Sutta and we always read the same translation. So I thought I'd read a different translation. This is one that was read by um, John Peacock, who's an Oxford scholar, and a translation that's a little bit different. You'll recognize it, but with with a little bit... Uh, he says, He who is skilled in welfare, who wishes to obtain that calm state, Nibbana, should act thus. He should be able, upright, perfectly upright, of noble speech, gentle and humble, contented, easily supported with few duties, of right livelihood, with senses calm, discreet, not impudent, not greedily attached to families, I think that that's an, that I think that comes from the fact he was talking to monks and and nuns and their livelihood came in effect from going and standing with their bowl in the village and some families might have more to give than others not greedily attached to families <coughs> my take on on that translation He should not pursue the slightest thing for which otherwise men might censure him. This element, this this passage mirrors the sila elements of the Eightfold Path, speech, action, livelihood. This, This is the way to behave. The second part of the of the Metta Sutta, you know, the second part mirrors the the meditation, the samadhi portion of the Eightfold Path. Effort, mindfulness, and concentration, the way to train the mind. So this is, the second section is, is the, the mental training. May all beings be happy and secure. May their hearts be wholesome. This is the wish. Sort of how we wish in our meta practice, right? Whatever, livings, whatever living beings there be, feeble or strong, stout or medium, short, small or large, without exception, seen or unseen, those dwelling far or near, those who are born or those who are to be born, may all these beings be happy. You know, Neem Karoli Baba said, never throw anyone out of your heart. That includes those Steubenville people, all of them. Even... Even when people are acting that way, let none deceive another, nor despise another, nor despise any person whatsoever in any place. 
Let none... Oh, I'm, I'm about to read from my mind. <laughs> Let him not wish any harm to another out of anger or ill will. Just as a mother will protect her only child at the risk of her own life, even so let him cultivate a boundless heart towards all beings. Let his thoughts of boundless love pervade the whole world, above and below and across, without any obstruction, without any hatred, and without any enmity. Whether he stands, walks, sits, or lies down, as in all the time, as long as he is awake, he should develop this mindfulness. So this is, this translator puts mindfulness and metta together as well. This, they say, is the noblest way of living here. How are we going to live here? This, I mean, imagine that. Not falling into wrong views, being virtuous and endowed with insight, by discarding attachment to sense desires, never again is such a one reborn. One of the one of the sessions in in January, one of the people in my group said, "You know, really, all you need is this." Another another element of of awakened view is that it doesn't contend with anyone. Which is striking. There's a in the the Honeyball Sutta, the the Buddha's out in the forest and he's sitting there, and along comes his cousin, a guy named Dandapani, who is not a fan. There was a lot of dysfunctionality in the Buddha's extended family. If you recall the stories, Devadatta actually tried to kill him. Um, And it may have been over something as well. No. Anyway, the Dandapani sort of sidles up to the Buddha and says, "What's the Holy One teaching today?" And he says, "I." Well, that's that's a loose translation. (laughs) It's updated. And he says, I teach a dharma that does not contend with anyone. That's a pretty high bar. Because almost any opinion you've got, you can find someone. I mean, you may not even have to look very far. You might disagree with your own opinion. (laughs) Which is, you know, I've (laughs) found myself there on occasion. I can't believe I said that. You know, and most opinions, you know, what is it about opinions? They're about right and wrong, true and false, good or bad. They're about judgment. They're about the way things ought to be. This is, this is um, the Buddha, the uh, simile of the saw, which is pretty striking. He says, bhikkhus. Even if bandits were to sever you savagely limb by limb with a two-handed saw, he who gave rise to a mind of hatred towards them would not be carrying out my teachings. He doesn't say you won't hurt. Here in Bhikkhus you should train thus. Our minds will remain unaffected and we shall utter no evil words we shall abide compassionate for their welfare with a mind of loving kindness without inner hate. We shall abide pervading them with a mind imbued with loving kindness and starting with them we shall abide pervading the all-encompassing world with a mind imbued with loving kindness, abundant, exalted, immeasurable, without hostility and without ill will. That is how you should train. So, you know, we're looking for truth and goodness in all the wrong places. 
so the you know it's a it's a handy test does this view find contention anywhere now the taste of a banana is just the way it is Steubenville is just the way it is, and the rest of this mess is the way it is. And it's heartbreaking. That's my story, and I'm sticking to it. <laughs> it's not about judgment. Now, judgment always flows from a clinging to an idea about the way things should be. I was talking about this earlier. So it's an understanding that doesn't contend with anyone. It's the middle path. And the middle path is just sort of almost a cliche at this point. You know, and and the the examples, we've all heard the examples. Well, there's the lute. You turn the tune the lute too tight and it's too and too loose and it doesn't sound too good. You've heard the lute? You know, we've heard the lute. Um, and then in the the the, uh, the turning of the wheel sutta, it's between indulgence and asceticism. You know, the Buddha tried asceticism and it didn't it didn't get him where he wanted to go, and he'd grown up in indulgence, and it didn't get him where he wanted to go. But it's kind of hard to grasp what we could be talking about, because in, in Western thought, and we've, we've been sort of cultured in that, uh, conditioned by that, there's a, a logical rule. A thing cannot be A and not A at the same time. You know, sort of, the, I think it's got a name, a formal name, the law of the excluded middle. <laughs> so Buddhist middle path is that. So, so sometimes it's hard to kind of know. So I was trying to think of, well, what's an example of a middle path? Well, you know, there's, um, you want to help your kids with their homework. Um, but you also want your kids to be independent. You actually it would be great if they do their homework on their own. <laughs> but somehow there has to be some training, you know. And so the middle path is not to do the homework for them. I sat in Starbucks once and watched someone doing the homework for the kid, and the kid was just looking off, you know. <laughs> and she was saying, well, what's two plus two, or whatever it was she was saying, and, you know, it's four, isn't it, right? <laughs> yeah, right. Okay. So, you know, that's sort of one extreme. And then the other extreme is not to be involved at all. But the reality is, you know, it's a koan. It's a koan which we answer with our behavior, with our life, with what we do. So we help sometimes. We, we, we work as best we can according to our understanding. So it's not one extreme or the other. It's not right or wrong. Um, it's not belief you know, blind faith or skeptical doubt. You know, blind, we, you know, those are those are two extremes. Skeptical doubt is no matter, you know, I just don't believe any of it. Why, why, why? The regressive, infinitely regressive. Why? Um, or perhaps um, beginner's mind and what, what? What would the opposite be? Expert's mind. What is it? What, what's the opposite of beginner's mind? We always we talk about beginner's mind as opposed to something. Expert's mind? Is that will that will that work? Not an expert, but somebody's been exposed to it already. Right, and we're you know we encourage beginner's mind, which doesn't mean you got to forget everything you know, or you forget your experience. It doesn't mean you have to be a dope. 
<laughs> or, or infantile. Um, it's not the opposite of expert mind. You can, begin, you can bring beginner sensibilities to expert mind and revisit some of the things you see. But you also can bring some of your experience and some of your expertise to beginner's mind so you aren't reinventing everything <laughs> constantly. It's, it's the middle path. It's the path of experience. The middle path throws you directly on your experience. What is this here right now? Mind and heart. It's like, oh, and the one I really like is is mind and body. Um, The mind-body problem. I just think the mind-body problem is great. You know what I'm talking about? You know, what's we got? We got the mind, and we got the body. You know, um, I, what, Descartes did that. Somebody did. You know, separate the mind and the body. They're separate, and then they can't figure out what's the relationship between the mind and the body. I remember, you know, asking a philosophy teacher. Wow, God, I don't even want to think. Fifty years ago, <clears throat> he was talking about. Yoga, and I said, "Well, what's the relationship between the mind and the body?" And he had no clue. He said, oh, "Well, it's, you know, it's it's a f- area of great discussion." <laughs> and yet, the mind and the body seem to be able to m- move right along, <laughs> even if we can't, you know, you separate it, then can't put it. It's just sort of Humpty Dumpty. Um, but the mind and the heart. Sylvia is suggesting that they are so intimately related you can't even see clearly without seeing with a benevolent heart. Ultimate truth and relative truth. Yeah. So um, it it would seem to me, maybe you can see what what you feel, that that not clinging to either side, the beginner's mind or the expert's mind, that is the middle way in there. Yeah. Yeah. Clinging to views is one of the forms of clinging, the four that the Buddha identifies. And there's a whole section in here in the Sutta where he talks about, you know, how clinging to views, you know, basically he says people who cling to views usually go about annoying other people. <laughs> you know, we have our beliefs and we think that people who think otherwise are, yeah. And we get into dispute. And the Buddha's path is a path that does not engage in dispute. It may not always be clear. It's because we're not used to looking there. Somebody sticks a microphone in your face and says, what's your opinion of, I don't know, ham and eggs? You say, well, you know, you shouldn't, or I don't know. You think you're supposed to have an opinion. We're supposed to have an opinion. We're cultured to have an opinion. We went to school an awful long time to learn how to fashion well-crafted opinions. So we can go around annoying people. Ultimate truth and relative truth. I'm not talking about ultimate reality and relative reality, because I think there's just, my opinion is, there's just reality. There's just things, there's just the way things are. And then there are are our opinions of the way things are and our thoughts about the way things are. But I, but I, um, but the middle way here, I, I guess the, I, I, I heard someone say once, my teacher say once, the ultimate truth is that there is no ultimate truth. Mm-hmm. Or the ultimate truth is that relative truth is empty. All of this just throws us right back on our experience again. What's here? What's What's the taste of this banana? 
what is the taste of the Dharma? What makes a particular um, view or understanding skillful is that it's about recognizing dukkha in our experience. You know, the Buddha's the four <laughs> the four truths, the ennobling truths, noble truths, or as Stephen Batchelor is referring to it these days, just the four. You know, there are four tasks. The first task is to understand dukkha, to have, you know, awakened view, awakened understanding, direct experience of the dissatisfaction that is that infuses our experience. It's you know we we can recognize it when it's when the gain is up really loud. You know when we're when we're you know grieving deeply or in some serious pain. But a lot of the time, it's sort of like the air conditioning in this room. It's there. We can hear it. But we don't notice it unless it goes off. And then we go, oh, that was on. Or like the refrigerator goes off in the other room. And you go, oh, the compressor was working on the refrigerator. It's sort of been down so long, it looks like up to me. It's not about it's not about um, truth. It's about experience. It's the it's what is our experience? How is our experience right now? And so, awakened understanding is the perception, is just the understanding of our task. What is our dharma task? Which is to understand dukkha, abandon the, the causes of dukkha, the kind of thirsting, longing, craving, wanting, wishing that you know gives rise to the dissatisfaction. Because things, Byron Katie says, you know, you can argue with the way things are. Um, you'll lose if you argue with the way things are, but only 100% of the time. <laughs> and to realize the, the cessation of this dissatisfaction, to live without dissatisfaction in, in this life and cultivate the Eightfold Path. You know, so our job, our, my dharma job, is to accomplish right view. Because that, you know, is the view of the Buddha, the understanding of the Buddha, or of a Buddha. A couple of, a couple of... <laughs> Bertrand Russell said, One, and this is in regard to the opinions and the views that we have so, so frequently, Bertrand Russell says, one should respect, I never really had, was, was into him too much, came across this, and I, I, one should respect public opinion insofar as it is necessary to avoid starvation and keep out of prison. <laughs> But anything that goes beyond this is voluntary submission to an unnecessary tyranny. Change is hard, says David Brooks, because people don't only think on the surface level. View is not on the surface level. He says, deep down, people have mental maps of reality, embedded sets of assumptions narratives and terms that organize our thinking. So it's not just a matter of going, Anicca, check. Dukkha, check. Anatta, got it. Okay, 
Now what? It's not knowing about those things. Now it's, it's, it's experiencing. Oh, see, the air conditioner's off. And, and why it's important is because our intention flows from our view. So our task is to accomplish right view and give rise to skillful intention, wisdom, compassion, and ethical behavior, sila. In the end, this awakened view, awakened understanding is personal. It's, it's crafted in the locality of your experience, your personal experience. Personal experience with all due respect and with a nod to anatta. So, right view is your own understanding, your own experience. You know, it's the it's it's that you know what what the Buddha said to Sivaka. It's it's recognizing, you know, when there is anger in you directly, recognizing it, knowing that. It's what he said to the Kalamas. Remember, he's, the Kalama said, you know, what's the deal? And he says, well, don't go by teaching, don't go by tradition, don't go by the wonderfulness of your teacher, don't go by scriptures, don't go by something that you've logically worked out. But when you know for yourself directly that your intention here is for for the benefit of yourself and others, go forward. And when you know that it's not, refrain. Now there's a, a sutta where the Buddha explains the all. He says, let me tell you about everything there is. There's colors, there's sights, there's sounds, there's tastes and smells, tactile sensations, and there's thoughts. Anybody who talks about anything beyond that is going beyond their own experience, he said. Beyond what one knows for oneself. Speculative views. Off into the realm, realms of contention. Is God blue? How, how would you know? Well, if he's being viewed from Kansas, he's red. From here, more bluish. So, you know, it's, it's the things that you know for yourself directly, not that you know about. And when Indraji said, if you want to know how your mind works, you want to know how things are, sit down and watch it. You know, you know the taste of a banana for yourself. And know about the taste of a jackfruit for me saying it's sort of pineapple-y. Maybe sort of... Um, the painfulness of loss, you know, you know for yourself. We don't want to feel that. The stress of defending a position. You can feel it in your body. The dukkha of defending a position, being defensive, arguing, maintaining a... I mean, it's tactile. That's where all the pleasant unpleasant is. It's in the body. And the benevolence of contentment. Or the contentment of benevolence. We can know that too, directly. So awakened understanding is just seeing clearly and feeling clearly. 
and it's it's constructed in our own experience. It's our own. We can construct a theology out of it. Like Wittgenstein said, we create language creates a vision, and then we we become enthralled, captivated by the vision. This is a story about a, a Zen, a, a Japanese painter who paints a picture of a tiger, and he's painting it in such exquisite, incredible detail. When he steps back from it, and he's a tiger, and he drops dead from a heart attack. <laughs> we can scare ourselves to death. It may not be a tiger, but Visions of, visions of the end of days or whatever. Yeah. And it's hard to not fall into those traps. I, I think I've told the story of my encounter with the, with the, uh, with the young, young woman at the checkout counter at my supermarket who says, how are you doing? How's it going? And I, I always react. I, I, I don't like that. So there was a time when I was, because it's, you know, it's just, it just, it, I, don't, I never know how to respond. There was a time I was experimenting with response, responses. I love Sylvia's response. She said, well, you know, as, I couldn't be better because if, if I could, I would. You know, but that day I said, well, I think things are looking up. I thought I'd try that. <laughs> and she said, oh, good. You're not one of those end of the world types then. I said, no, no, no. Universe has been around for 13 billion years. You know, it's probably got a few more to go. She said, I don't think it's 13 billion years. Uh I I didn't see that. (laughs) I said, oh, you're in the 18 billion year school? That's sort of so 1980s. You know. She said, no, no, it's only 7,000 years old. Well, you know. So, you know, it's, it's my conditioning. And then she started to explain to me that radiocarbon data dating wasn't as accurate as they said, or as they think. But I, 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 I went for the astronomical measurements. That didn't work either. <laughs> you know. So it's 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 easy to get sucked in. And at those times, you know, compassion for our own <laughs> poor selves. So I guess, you know, right view is the start of the Eightfold Path. It's the whole ball game. It's the whole ball game. And it's our task to try to see and feel as clearly as possible. So let me just, um, rather than continue rattling on, give you guys a chance to uh, express your opinions. (laughs) Please. (laughs) (laughs) I'm going to ask for yours. Um, So how do I um, live or see with benevolent, uh, awakened understanding, things like the division and divisiveness and partisanship in our country at the moment. Well, you, you see division, divisiveness, and partisanship. Yes, without... Oh, without with, getting reactive. Without getting reactive and also without wishing... Well, still wishing it would be different, but having, not hope, but struggling. How do we deal with, right, how do we read the newspaper? How do we read the newspaper or listen to any news or any conversation almost anywhere? Well, you know, what we want is, is not to feel unhappy. And so the judgment that we that we react with just is it serves to cover up the the unhappiness the sadness now one thing about the news and i and we all know this this isn't new you know it it's it's screaming horrible things it's it's bummer news you know with 
with a human interest tidbit at the end <laughs> as dessert. But I think that that, that has to do with our, uh, uh, how our organisms have been cultured. We, you know, if we as an organism, if we as a species were not attuned to threats, we'd say, oh, this is, I'm into this pleasant stuff. Look at the sun is warm. It's a great, I'm going to go lie out on the rock and the next thing you know, you're lunch. And there's less of a possibility of passing on your genes than if you're sort of like a bird. <laughs> you know, always looking, you know, where's the cat? And so I think that we are attuned to look for, you know, I think worry comes with the organism. There's nothing wrong with it. It just is painful. And if we say, well, i got to stop doing this, there's something wrong with it, we add another level of judgment and pain on top of it. So I think when we go to read the newspaper, let's realize, my gosh, this... These are the heaven realms here. But we've got the soundtrack from hell. <laughs> and it tells us what's going on and how to how to how to behave. You know, the news readers on you know, here's another horrible story. I wouldn't want to be so and so, you know. I mean, there's the, the attitude is embedded, but just recognize that it's... I sometimes think of this in relation to gratitude practice, you know, which comes from the Christian tradition where we're supposed to be grateful to God for dukkha. Mm-hmm. <laughs> you know, what is this? Anicca dukkha anatta dissatisfaction comes with the territory. If, if satisfaction is of moment to you, you're going to be dissatisfied. So, it's, it, we just don't want it. We don't like this Anicca, Dukkha, Anatta business. Well, we, we certainly don't like the Dukkha business. We've got to get over that. And if people would just get their acts together, we could, right? I think you could eliminate all the social injustice on the planet and not touch dukkha. It arises within us. It's the wanting that, you know, what's reborn? Tanha is reborn. Every moment. Craving. Wanting. Just, you know, you, 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 know, you get one thing and, and you're ready for that. I've sat on retreat thinking, on my next retreat I'm going to get really concentrated. <laughs> Have anybody done something like that? The next one. I can already tell this one's... <laughs> <laughs> we don't like this dukkha. The cessation, the path of the cessation of dukkha, isn't changing the world all around. You know, it's not what it's not what the Buddha says. Um, so we just have to we have to learn to be with it as it is, and when we're not. We suffer, but only 100% of the time. Yeah. My favorite say, uh, saying according to dealing with wanting is Oscar Wilde once said, I can avoid everything except temptation. Yeah. Yeah. It's out, we want pleasant experience. That's the truth. Anybody wake up this morning and say, Let's see. I'm going to do. I'm going to make myself miserable today. I don't want to stand in the cold. I don't. You know. I want to get all wet in the. I mean, we just don't do that. We want. That's the way we are. And when the experience isn't pleasant, well, it's already not pleasant, and we can make it worse. We can say, "I knew I should have probably." You know. Why can't they do something about the weather? It's all the weather. It's all like the weather. And you don't have to get sucked in to the 
the ambient narrative. You know, just like you know, one you got a, a herd of deer out there, and one of them hears something, and the head goes up, and then everybody's head goes up. We do the same thing. And we can look at just how how wonderful this opportunity is. I mean, how many places on this planet? I mean, there's there's some, there's plenty even, but in in the scheme of things, where people can sit and contemplate lives in this way. So I can rattle on and on and on, but um, probably is uh, not such a good idea. So I thank you for your attention. Thank you for listening. To learn how you can support the teachers and Dharma Seed, please visit dharmaseed.org slash donate.